Hello and welcome to Whose Song Is It Anyway, a podcast with me, Dr. Hayley Bosher, co-hosted with Jules O'Riordan. Hello, I'm Dr. Hayley Bosher and I'm a Senior Lecturer in Intellectual Property Law at Brunel University London and the author of Copyright in the Music Industry. My name's Jules O'Riordan, aka Judge Jules. I'm a partner at Sound Advice. I'm a specialist music lawyer and a long-time kind of DJ and music maker. And then it's me. Hi guys, my name is Des. I'm co-founder of Soga World, which is a web-free creative agency where we basically onboard talent and brands into the web-free space. I'm also currently a PhD candidate, I'm currently doing studying remuneration rights or research and remuneration rights for artists in the digital era. And I am a massive crypto evangelist. So yeah, I'm really excited to, to be talking to you guys today. Wow, there's a lot of different topics which we could hit upon. I mean, some of them more copyright orientated and some more just how the music uh, business can drag itself screaming and kicking into the modern world. Um, I, I'm going to start my starter for one, if you don't mind my butting in at first. Um, I've had a number of uh, startups coming and visiting me in my legal practice uh, with ideas about using blockchain as a, as a means of royalty payments. And as far as I'm aware in the music sphere, it hasn't, um, that hasn't taken off yet. It seems eminently sensible. Uh, why do you think it hasn't taken off as yet? Um, purely because it's a system that hasn't developed. So if you put into perspective, um, so there was that case where Nas went and sold one of his NFTs I can't remember, for about, I think it was like £750,000 or dollars um, through Royal. Now, to put to put into perspective how many people are how many streams do you need to obtain in order to earn seven hundred and fifty thousand pounds i mean you can probably do the math it's like in the it's a lot of streams and do you know how many people or how many artists are obtaining those levels of streams i could do the maths but i yeah it's a lot if you're looking at people who are in the billion club there's just about like i think it's just over 100 or under 100 people who've been able to attain the billion amount of streams. Now, if I was an investor, or if I went and bought that NFT token, no disrespect, but I would be expecting that artist to be promoting all of their, that work on all of their social platforms, on YouTube, on Spotify, and continuously saying, go stream my music, go listen to my music until I get a return on investment. And so I think that what people started to realize is that Obviously, if you're an artist who has uh, a particular level of success or a particular reach, it's if you were to do that kind of thing for the fans, it would just be seen as um, either an investment vehicle where they think they're going to get a lot of money back. But again, that's investment. That's trading. And that in itself is a job description. <laughs> People actually do this full time. It's not something that you could just passively do for if you're a general fan. Um, whereas, but if you're an upcoming artist where you have a bit more to kind of, you, you have a bit more um, fluidity in the game, you can um, do, a, you can be a lot more agile. It makes sense to do that because you actually need the money. So it's not really seen as a cash grab, whereas for somebody who's established, it could be seen as a cash grab. And so this is why I feel like the general sentiment over time has like that royalty aspect hasn't really developed. And I think this just comes back to the point of, when you are buying royalties, essentially you are a label. And the reality is, is that 
this is one of the issues I find with the crypto space at the moment is that everybody's just chucking everything into a bucket, calling NFTs, DAOs, web free stuff all one term. When the reality is, is that they're separate. And it's really important, like if we're looking to get a lot of people into the space, we have to separate those definitions or at least get those definitions correct. So, for instance, that royalty um, project, all those people selling their royalties, you're mixing the two of being an investor and a fan. And that is like a new concept that hasn't really happened, that people don't really fully understand. It hasn't developed to its final form yet. And I think that for simplicity's sake, it's just easier for people with some sort of notoriety just to keep it simple and just have it so that when they do sell a quote unquote an NFT that it's just a a collectible like something that can engage in the brand or the fan and not seen as an investment vehicle because that way then you'll start to see people learning more over time and actually wanting to engage in the space then in the next five ten years when people fully understand what web3 technology is about then they'll be able to understand the value aspects of buying such products. Sure. I mean, I've got, Hayley, I don't want to start monopolizing here, but I've, I've obviously in legal practice dealt a lot in uh, the, the legal issues and the commercial issues surrounding NFTs over the course of the past sort of 18 months in particular. And there are two, I, I think what Hayley, what we'll do is get you to, in a moment, if I, if I may, because I am slightly uh, taking up the pirates, taking over the ship, um, get you to comment more about the the copyright aspect of it because it's a very interesting, unique set of circumstances. The way that copyright is or isn't transferred when somebody buys an NFT. But um, to give you my to, to give you my observations with regard to what makes a successful NFT, and, and maybe you can comment on these three factors. Um, and and it's one. I would suggest that the three factors that make a successful NFT are one to state the glaringly obvious that it's something unique because many people don't create just just throw stuff out and think that that is enough because nfts are out there two is marketing uh, because many nfts aren't properly marketed because there are many naive players in the game and three having a, a fan base of that individual assuming that it's an artifact relate, relating to a particular individual that are actually a, a mindful to buy or to, to invest in nfts because some there are there are certain artists and certain creators who probably appeal to an age group who aren't really mindful to do that. So those would be my three, my, you know, my three tips, if you like, for creating a successful NFT. Uh, comment on it, if you will. Cheers. Yeah, um, I, I caught some of that because my headphones were cutting in and out. But I think um, one of the, I'll touch on the last point, as you said, about the fans engaging um, who actually understand about the space. Um, yeah, I feel like NFTs are right at this moment in time in this current market are specifically catered towards the super fans. And so people who actually care so much about the artist and want to be able to engage in, in the brand of the artist in a way that they couldn't do before. So great example, um, we went and at Sega World, we went and did the first um, NFT project with um, at OVO Wembley Arena, where we went on tour with Neo and sold meet and greet experiences as an NFT. So people purchased that. But it was what we found was that it was only the super fans who wanted to be able to engage in that. And what they got in exchange was access to soundcheck. Now, you can imagine going to an empty Wembley Arena and there's only about 20, 30 people and they're able to 
um, interact with Neo and Neo would ask, I'll say, what songs do you want to be able to hear, hear us hear us play with this band? And then somebody will shout out, ah, oh, Sexy Love. And literally they would go in and start playing it. And that was so sick, pun intended, to be able to actually see um, what it was for his super fans to own a quote-unquote Neo NFT. And so I feel like that's where it's really important to be able to focus your attention, especially at this moment stage, to the fans who actually care and the fans who are willing to go the extra mile to understand that technology. And again, you are absolutely correct with in regards to the marketing aspect. I think what people need to realize is that when you market your NFT project, your market you have to be very wary of the community that it is that you're marketing to. So at the moment, people really do focus on the um, the crypto spheres, like the crypto space, and doing marketing to cater towards that group. When they go and see an artist who has their entire fan base within the Web two space, and so it's like you want to be able to create a product and then you're going to market it to the wrong people or do the wrong type of marketing. Because at the moment, crypto marketing is just about shilling a project. You get a ton of DMs or direct, or, or messages or emails or Telegram messages saying, oh yeah, this new project coming out, this is a PFP model, X, Y, and Z. And in reality, like that is the wrong type of marketing if you're trying to engage in a user base who don't really understand about that. And so that's another thing to also be uh, mindful of. Um, I can't remember the first point, but hopefully I'll, I've touched on a few bits. Uh, the first point, very briefly, was was probably the most obvious. To make sure you've actually got something unique, because and you're not just you're you're not just giving away kind of stuff that you've got in the in the attic, uh, in the in the digital or sort of physical artifact attic. Yeah, that is so true. So 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 true. And also, it's being able to make sure that you're following through on the opportunities that you're providing. So, like, for instance, we've gone and worked with some artists who've gone and said that they want to be able to provide um, meet and create experiences, shopping trips, um, even access to video shoots for fans. That's that's something that they would want to be able to get involved with. And it's easy on the artist to be able to provide. Um, whereas, obviously, when you've got certain fans who obviously buy a particular NFT with the expectation of it going up and down in value, that also then impacts the the relationship that they have with that artist because they will forever attach that particular experience of that NFT to that of the artist. And when in reality, they're two completely separate experiences. And so, yeah, 110%, it is about being able to have the, the right experience attached to that, um, to their token. On that point, then, um, I have a question about, um, so we should probably, maybe you can just explain a bit in your answer to the question about like what an NFT is or what it can be, like what it what it can do, what kind of opportunities are there for artists. But um, some of the things like when you're talking about the experience with Neo, I'm like, that is, like I said, so sick, so cool, fans will love it, it's an amazing experience. But then there's other things like um, NFTing the albums like Muse did and H. And I'm just wondering when they sell their album as an NFT, like does that also have an additional experience attached to it? Or is that just a format of sale? Um, you know, is there a difference yeah. there? Yeah, so it's very really interesting that. I mean, when we went and did the H copy um nft drop so we went and partnered with the guys at limewire and also his label capital in order to basically do a bundle where fans could 
buy the NFT and attach to that, they'll be able to get um, uh, the physical vinyl or CD um, alongside of that. And that would then count towards the chart sale. Now, we had to work with the OCC because um, obviously in order to get things that are chart eligible, um, it comes with a lot of rules. And um, they were really, really great in being able to explain that to us so that we can essentially have that particular drop be chart eligible. And so what they said was um, anything that kind of takes away from the experience of the music or has a higher value, what they deemed as a higher value to the music or gamified people or tricked people in order to buy more of the NFT or more of the CDs or more of the vinyls, that would not be classed as chart eligible. And so we had to be very um, cognizant in what it was that we went and did around that particular drop. And so, for instance, um, they gave us the example of um, BTS. Now, obviously, BTS, they have many members in the band. And um, obviously, they have a lot of super fans who, when BTS released their album, instead of having one simple um, album cover, they would have album covers of all the different band members at the front. Now, if you're a super fan, you're going to buy all of those different CDs because you want to get all of them because you like all of the band members. Now, that might be good for the record label. That might be good for the management. But in terms of that being fair for the rest of the charts, that wasn't actually, that's not chart eligible. So it wouldn't count. And so that kind of goes along the same with PFP projects, like profile picture projects, where you have different NFTs that are all individually unique. And there's an incentive to be able to buy a lot of them because you know that because it's unique, because of Metcalf's law, people are going to be wanting to own it and that that will increase the value of the NFT over time. Now, that would be deemed as not chart eligible. So we had to just do a clean drop where the NFT was just, everybody got the same NFT, but then we also did something on the side, which was the different cards were, you could basically buy a card from the album, which represented all the different singles in the album. And that was like something that wasn't um, affected his chart position in terms of doing the bundles, but it was just uh, another metric to be able to um, engage with his fans a lot more deeper. And so with that, if people went and purchased that card, then they'd be able to, um, as I said, get access to a whole bunch of experiences. If it be shopping trips, um, meet and greets, uh, lifetime access to shows, so it really does depend on, as he said, well, it really does depend on what type of um, experience that you want to be able to give, but more importantly, the type of strategy that you want to be able to do for a particular campaign. So um, I think that answered that question. <laughs> it's really interesting to hear about um, the negotiations with the official, official charts company and how that impacted your mm-hmm. um, strategy. Can you tell us a bit more about that experience, what that was like creating that NFT? Um, was, was that it, that part of the goal to be, you know, part of this movement towards, um, you know, like you said, negotiating with them? That's like really pushing things forward in terms of the kind of reputation of NFTs to be creditable. Yeah, I mean, um, for us, it was all about being able to um, increase the, like create a blueprint where the music industry can replicate and utilize web free technology in a way that kind of isn't linked to having NFTs be an investment tool and just using it for just straight up fan experiences and 
being able to do really cool stuff with the tech that yeah can be easily replicatable so um for us we just wanted to be able to utilize and show that web free technology can be done in a way that is really really nice and it's not following the the general trends of pfp projects and people trying to buy in order to trade and flip nfts it's just like you don't have to do that you can be very specific with um your particular drops and what it is that you're um what it is that you're trying to offer so yeah but it was a really really great experience we just yeah as i said we just wanted to be able to um create a blueprint that can be replicated and now you're starting to see other people trying to do the same thing obviously serenades they they obviously got the digital pressing which is um quite different to what is that we're doing but again it's their key is to be able to get people using the technology and to have different artists engage in the tech in a way that is actually aligned with what the music industry is about rather than trying to kind of force a narrative like the crypto narrative into the industry which quite frankly doesn't really care but it can be supplementary it can work in a way that actually impacts everybody for the better so yeah but otherwise yeah it was a really good it was a really great experience in that and also just being able to work with somebody like um h and his team nq they were absolutely brilliant i mean i mean they were so receptive and obviously we went and did everything around the album and um, they were just wanted to be able to obviously make sure that everything was aligned. And so they gave us a lot of freedoms to be able to just get things done, which I feel like is really important when working with different artists or specific artists who want to be able to engage in the web free space. Interestingly, you, a lot of the NFT um, exploitation you're describing is, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, sounds like a token to actually receive something that's quite physical. Whereas in my legal practice, for I guess for obvious reasons, it's been more about digital exploitation of pre-existing copyright, whether it's been songs, whether it's been recordings, whether it's been very frequently been bits, bits of artwork. Whereas what, what you're describing is more about a way of a, a token to actually do for a super fan to achieve an experience. Um, and I guess that is that's the element of NFT, NFTs that moves a bit away from the sort of buzzword of tradables and but more into a much more practical long-term uh, use of nfts if i'm not mistaken yeah that's absolutely correct because obviously through doing my phd um in ip law <laughs> trying to get any type of access to any type of ip that um the industry stakeholders own um it just doesn't make sense because the market hasn't developed enough and to then expose our clients in such a way, it's um, it's quite careless. And unless you're able to um, actually have a great conversation, not just with the records, but record side, but also the publishing side, and anybody who's been involved in that um, um, IP creation process, um, it just doesn't make sense. And obviously, the, the larger the artist, then the more complicated it becomes because they're obviously different stakeholders who have their, who, who want to be able to have their needs and wants. And so, yeah, for us, we just felt like it's really important to be able, not just to say stay away from it, because we are working on projects where we will be using particular IP. But as I said, we wanted to be able to make sure that we could get this technology out to the masses. And I mean, even to the point where we don't really use the term NFTs anymore, because we kind of feel that 
is such a buzzword that um, has quite negative connotations. And also it's a bit outdated in a sense where we kind of view it as the use of the word uh, or the statement um, World Wide Web. I mean, nobody says, oh, yeah, I'm going to get on the World Wide Web in order to get onto Instagram. It's like, no, like likewise with NFTs, you're not going to say, oh, I've got this NFT that's going to give me access to um, H or Neo or whoever. You're just going to say, yeah, I've got I've, I've got backstage access or I've, I've got um, a meet and greet experience. And I feel like that's where we're going ultimately when it comes to the use of the technology. Because if I was to say, oh, yeah, do, do you know the code that is being um, that the Internet is being built on? The majority of people don't know and they don't care. And I feel like that's where we're at at this moment in time in this space. And so with all of that in mind, we really felt like, OK, then if we are to be able to get the masses involved, we need to go to where the masses are. And for that that and what they care about and for the masses, what they care about is the ultimate experience, which is to be able to either see the artist perform live or meet the artist, um, if not experience them, them at their purest form of creating art. And so that's where we feel like the industry will be for the foreseeable future until it's kind of developed and people then ultimately move over and um understand the use of the tech which is actually quite complicated and it's actually a lot so um yeah that's how we've positioned ourselves it's really um refreshing i think the way that you talk about it because yeah i kind of get a bit uh tedious with like the specific technology angle that lots of people go for in and of its like it has as if the nft has value in and of itself whereas i agree with you that actually it's just a kind of it's a tool as a way to interact with your fans and stuff like that. And I think something that you mentioned about the different rights holders in the IP, um, which I think is really important to kind of acknowledge, is this whole thing of about the rights and that people who are trying to uh, either create an NFT experience or, or mint an F- NFT of something that they that they've created, but they might not actually own the rights. And I always use the example of Quentin Tarantino, because I think it's hilarious that um, you'd, you'd expect someone like him to understand. Um, and so Eve, you can't feel foolish if even he uh, didn't understand it um, and was sued by the studio when he tried to NFT um, parts of the script um, for his film. So the point is that like you did have to work with the other stakeholders with H and with his record label as well, right? You, it's not that, um, something that you can just do without engaging with people that you've contracted with. Oh, 100%. And I think like how we kind of position ourselves is like a web 2.5 rather than a web 3. So we needed to make sure that older stakeholders, if they were going to be getting involved, that they were incentivized in some way or form. And what better way to incentivize them by going to where they are and just being able to have like an extra revenue, um, source of revenue or try and impact their already well worn out ways of creating impact. I mean, um, creating revenue in just have um, increasing the sales of what it is that they already have. Um, I feel like that's really important. And again, if you was to then get involved with this is why if you was to do the um, the NFT projects where you're trying to sell royalties it makes more sense if you're an up-and-coming artist and where you don't have 
where you've not signed off your rights to a, a particular label and you own absolutely everything because you can maneuver it a lot more nicer. But then if you're in a position where obviously you've got a publishing deal, you've got a record deal, um, then it's just a lot more messy. And how we've kind of, when we've approached situations like that, we've just gone across the board and just said, you know what, it's just better to do equal splits. Um in, in terms of the percentage that you feel as an artist that the music has had an impact on that particular NFT project. So how we kind of see it is if you've gone and, gone and done an art piece and there's an experience attached and then there's music attached to that, then all three of those um, pieces of IP essentially all impact the the overall artwork. And so it's just better to split it down the middle unless you feel that the experience is worth more than the music or if the artwork is worth more than the experience, um, then yeah, then it becomes like a bit of a, a bit of a maze to kind of navigate. So that's why usually when dealing with stuff, we just say, you know, it's just better to do equal splits until there becomes some sort of industry standards that we obviously can adhere to. Jules, for you with, um, I was just going to ask you, from a, from a contract's perspective, do you see this as something that you're going to be, provisions you're going to be putting in contracts, you know, before, in case this comes up, rather than negotiating afterwards? Yeah, and I mean, NFTs come up in a number of different contractual perspectives. Um, firstly, I've, there, were a lot of, there were a lot of businesses trying to, to market, to, to root out uh, content and market NFTs. And I've done an assortment of those agreements. And that's what led me to kind of disseminate um, the stuff that we discussed earlier, uh, and I and I certainly got the sense that, and it's very refreshing that that you that sort of as you've kind of moved on from the notion that you have to have a collectible and there has to be a kind of a tradability about it. Because I've I've done some deals where I just you know, my clients have, asked, have sort of thrust a contract in front of me, said you know this is this is being given to me, and it and it just felt like they were doing it because they've. Both the, both the client and the, the NFT exploiter was doing it almost because they felt like there was they had to. You know, I am an artist. NFTs have come around. I've therefore got to do one. And the contracts, I mean, the most the, the, the very similar contractually, really to a lot of to a record deal, other than that there is a residual royalty for resale. Um, that's about one of the, the key differences. I mean, I'm, it would be fascinating from a from an intellectual property perspective, because they sit somewhere, they, you know, I suppose they're most akin to a kind of license, but they're not really a license per se. And I'm sure, Hayley, you must be teaching about them, teaching IP students about them already. And I'm sure there's some new terminology that's come out of it as a consequence of that. Um, so yeah, I mean, and then obviously when one looks at music publishing agreements and record deals they get referred to but it's more an approval right that one would give the creative the 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 recording artist or the or the songwriter um so that they can't their record company and or publisher can't sort of ride roughshod over their wishes but i but i don't think you can create a one-size-fits-all clause uh, dealing with what what happens to the exploitation if you're talking music which is the majority of what i do um, then there'd always be two clearances required, or generally speaking, be two clearances required required in the recording and the the, the musical composition. And very often they belong to two separate entities. So I think you touched upon that there's earlier. So there are, um, but those are those are old-fashioned problems um, being applied to a slightly more newfangled situation. 
I think the artist resale point is really uh, interesting because it's not really clear if it applies to digital art anyway, let alone NFTs. But we are seeing lots of the platforms, including an equivalent just through their terms and conditions, which is really interesting. And we definitely need to watch the space on that in uh, the UK because it is an EU regulation. And so we will need to make new UK law to implement that if we want to keep the resale right, uh, because it will, um, with this new bill, they will take out the, the EU regulation and we need to replace it. So that's really interesting. Um, I guess we're coming to time. So uh, I don't know if you have a final question, Jules. I think, I think we probably covered it all. I mean, it's been, it's been very fascinating. Actually, uh, when, when I was first talking about um, royalties, I was actually talking about blockchain as a, as a way of reporting royalties and a way of artists getting paid slightly outside of the NFT space, um, um, bypassing the convention, conventional, rather paper-heavy heavy channels of, of record company royalty um, accounting. But... Uh, you answered it, Des, uh, slightly differently and slightly tangentially, but in a far more interesting way than my boring question. So thank you. <laughs> no, that's interesting. I mean, I could I could touch upon that royalty aspect. Um, yeah, that all comes down to data. <laughs> so obviously blockchain is the medium which that data can travel by and you obviously the use of smart contracts can um, easily make that process very, very seamless. But again, if you've got crap data, you're going to get crap information out at the end. And obviously, this has been an issue in the music industry for years, like being able to have that level of transparency behind all those deals and whatnot. It's going to take a lot um, of work <laughs> and conversations in order to make that happen. Um, and I know that you've got guys like Utopia who are looking to um, solve that issue and other um, people within the space. But um just to also have a caveat on the, the point that you made about um, the um, royalties and resale rights. Um, I feel like this is another thing where it's, it's a great nicety to have. But when you're doing an NFT project, um, the whole point of being able to have a secondary market that where your NFT has value really comes down to gamification and comes down to what it is that you're able to do in order to incentivize traders essentially to buy and resell and buy and resell your particular product your nft now that's something that has never happened in the music industry on this scale apart from if you was to buy an old album a vinyl record from the 70s or try and rebuy a, a physical merch from i don't know ebay or something and so I think what you're going to find now is you're going to see really cool ways in which artists are going to be able to gamify their work so that they can add value beyond just that first engagement of the song from that first listen. And I think that's what's going to be really exciting. But yeah, that's, that's a whole other conversation in itself. Well, I think it's been really interesting and we would love to talk about this all evening, but yeah. Uh, so thanks very much, Des. It's been really insightful and really interesting to hear about your projects and uh, we look forward to seeing what comes next. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe.